Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, I'm uh, talking to my friend and colleague, Adriana Jacobs, who is Associate Professor of uh, Hebrew Literature at Oxford. And my name is Yaron Peleg. I teach uh, something similar at uh, the University of Cambridge, not far away. And it's a great pleasure, Adriana, to um, talk to you about uh, your new book. You, um, it, it came out last year or this, just, just last year? Yeah, August 2018. Yeah, tell us the name of the book. So my book is Strange Cocktail, Translation and the Making of Modern Hebrew Poetry, and it was published by the University of Michigan Press as part of its, let me make sure I get it right, its Comparative Jewish Culture series. Yeah, no, what, what, what is really interesting, what was really interesting for me about you and the book is the combination, because you have a, an unusual background in, in our field, I think. Uh, I don't think uh, you come from um, a Hebrew speaking or Jewish background, is that correct? Um, I don't. And, right. and so you sort of um, bumped into this field sometime in your... Uh, uh, in your 20s? And uh, how did it happen? Um, well, it's a very, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of story that is only possible when you are, I think, really young. Um, I might be wrong about that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so basically, I, right, I didn't um, grow up uh, in a, in, in the, the sort of context that, would have made contact with Hebrew um, frequent or expected. So I actually grew up speaking Spanish and English at home and studied uh, Latin American literature in college, which is how I ended up spending my junior year abroad in Chile, um, in Santiago de Chile. And I met uh, some Israelis while I was traveling um, and one Israeli in particular, um, we traveled around together and 
through that uh, friendship, I became acquainted with other Israelis um, and found myself um, hearing a lot of Hebrew for the first time in my life and finding this language very appealing um, and wanting to sort of know more about it. Um, So when I got back to college um, to finish uh, my studies, um, I actually had maxed out the credits that I could do for my undergraduate degree, uh, which was basically in comparative literature, what they called literary and cultural studies at my, at my college. And so a friend of mine actually suggested that I take Hebrew um, to fulfill my credit requirement. And it turns out that uh, where I went to school, the College of William and Mary, they didn't offer modern Hebrew, but they did offer biblical Hebrew. Um, and the Hebrew teacher uh, who's still a very dear friend of mine, encouraged me to take her course because she said that biblical Hebrew would be a great foundation for modern Hebrew language study. How and, is your biblical Hebrew today? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I think at this point, I, I mean, I used to really, uh, like I used to be able to do Nikud really well. And um, <laughs> that stuff has sort of faded a bit. Um, it, I mean, obviously I can, I can read biblical Hebrew, uh, but I think sometimes I read it the way modern Hebrew speakers do. Um, no, but no, I, I actually do think quite a bit of it has stuck. Um, so, I mean, it was an incredible foundation. When I finally did a summer ulthan at the Hebrew University the following year, um, I remember in the beginning, I just... Uh, I felt like I knew more grammar than everyone else. I just was missing vocabulary. Um, so, and obviously it was a little strange to actually be saying out loud things that I had only really known um, by reading. Um, but no, it was an incredible foundation. But more importantly, my did you team- do also? Did you did you just do language when you went there, or did you also do some um, uh, more substantive literary courses? Um, well, so in the beginning, I did only language study. Um, well, not quite. So yeah, I did language study, but I took um, um, a I did an independent course with Sidra Israhi on Tel Aviv poetry. But a lot of that was reading and translation because I really didn't know enough Hebrew. Except Sidra was really um, incredible because in the beginning, she said it was perfectly okay to just read the translations. But very quickly, she started telling me, well, it would be better if you would read the Hebrew. And so I, I kind of felt like I should do it. Um, so it was challenging, but I would just take my dictionary and and get to work. Um, and the nice thing about poetry is that often you're dealing with shorter text. So you can actually go through checking every word and feel like you've read something. Um, but actually, I had also done that with my first Hebrew teacher at William & Mary. We would meet every Friday and read poems by Rachel in um, in Hebrew. I would translate them word for word, and we would talk about them. So I had actually been doing that from the beginning. So your biblical teacher used modern Hebrew poems to um, sort of augment the study. For me, because she knew how much I wanted to know modern Hebrew. And I think also because she's such an incredibly generous person. Um, and she she was willing to do this with me. And um, I still marvel at it because up until that point, I was, you know, I was studying Latin American literature and <laughs> just decided out of the blue to start Hebrew. Um, and, and so she, that year, yeah. so that, that year or that time you spent in Jerusalem 
totally changed your the course of your life, huh? Yeah, and actually that is, um, I have to say that um, my first Hebrew teacher, Nama, was also instrumental in making that happen. She probably doesn't even remember this, but she actually was the one who suggested that I apply to the Hebrew University because they were offering scholarships for students to go and study Hebrew. Um, I don't know if they do that anymore, but they used to. And so I actually got a scholarship to go and study Hebrew for a year. And it was really nice because I only needed to focus on studying the language. Of course, because I I can't study a language and not read its literature. Then I arranged to do this independent study with Sidra Ezrahi. And, um, and by the end of the year, was sitting in on lectures um, in what we called the main campus of Hebrew University. Um, so that's when I actually was, um, I, I went and I heard, for example, Maya Bejerano read um, just, there was one course that had like a lot of poets visiting. And so I would just go and listen to the poets. I think I understood one tenth of what I was hearing, um, but it was really wonderful. And I think, so, I, and, yeah. And, and how is this project related to this book? It seems to me very much so, but how, um, because this did you, you, your new book mm-hmm. is about uh, the central role of poetry in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the central role of um, translation. Translation yeah. in poetry. Um, so how is it? Um, how did you mix this? Well, I think because I came to Hebrew literature through translation, so to speak. I mean, both through these translations I was doing every Friday. Um, as an undergraduate and also reading in translation, um, I, I started to, I think it just, for me, felt very natural to bring that into my, what was then my dissertation project. Um, I, you could say that I saw translation everywhere in part because it, it was how I was making my way through this new literature. Um, and so I was very attuned to the way um, poets were translating, the way they incorporated translation strategies into their own work or activated translation strategies in their own work. Um, but all of this was sort of combined for me. I, I, I think both uh, making my way through Hebrew literature in translation, through translation, <laughs> and with translation, um, by the time yeah. it came to put together a project, um, it felt very natural to focus on translation. Translation, though, um, to, to me, as somebody who, is, who doesn't engage so much with it, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in my own research, um, can be very, can seem very um, technical. Right. How do you, um, how did you deal with this in the book, um, making mm-hmm. it? Because the book is really what, what's interesting about it for me, I mean, mm-hmm. reading it, is is the way that you um, use translation to say some pretty different things about mm-hmm. poets we actually know and and, and familiar with. Right. But you're taking the translation and you use that angle right. to say different things. And so I, I'm wondering how um, mm-hmm. you managed to take something that is thought of as fairly technical and and sort of leveraging it Mm -hmm. differently um yeah i really appreciate that you noticed that about the book i think for me part of it is that um well i'm I'm dealing with poetry and translation and i think that 
the relationship between poetry and translation is not technical at all. I, I mean, so, and I'm thinking here about like poetic translation or translations of poetry. Um, so anytime you talk about the translation of poetry, uh, or at least when I do, because I also translate Hebrew poetry into English, and, and we can talk more about that as well. But one of the things, one of the questions that I guess all the time, and if I had a shekel for each time, I would, would have retired 10 years ago, um, is that it, it's not, you know, that translating poetry is not possible, um, that you have to make too many concessions, um, that it'll never be like the original text, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but having read a lot of poetry in translation, also translating poetry, and also reading poets who translate, I see translation as being fundamentally creative. Um, and so because for me, translation is so creative, it it's it's inseparable from the poetic act itself. It's, it's inseparable from original writing. Um, and, and that's really the foundation of this project is, is thinking about translation as a very dynamic creative process. Um, and therefore one that you can't sort of take for granted. Um, and, and, and that's why for me also the figure of the poet translator becomes really the center of the book. Um, Are you, Mm-hmm. Are you connecting? Are you connecting it to the history? I mean, are you talking about a little bit in the book about the history of translation uh, and its role in the shaping of modern Hebrew literature? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so first of all, I think um, there's this broad view, um, and and maybe one way to discuss it is to to highlight an essay that has been very. Uh, influential in my thinking about this topic, which is Octavio Paz's um, essay on, on, on translation. Um, and in his essay, um, he talks about, um, trans, about poetry as translation. Um, and, and this isn't sort of a new idea or claim that he's making. He actually contextualizes it um, in a very deep history of poetry, citing various poets who have talked about their own writing and about poetic language as translation. Um, and then on the Hebrew side of things, so I think that is something that I see happening in the field of Hebrew poetry across many decades. Um, but I was also very interested in how we can um, we can see in the kind of translations of, say, the 19th century and the translations throughout the 20th century, how the translation of poetry into Hebrew uh, kind of uh, um, aligns with or corresponds with developments in original Hebrew writing. Um, and where the line between translation and, and, write, and writing really blurs. Um, so initially, the project really focused on the 20th century. Um, and then at some point, I honestly, I, th- I, I don't even quite remember how I got there. I, I think I've always found the 19th century to be a little scary. <laughs> so, um, you know, the Hebrew is very different. Well, the Hebrew is so different. I mean, we use modern Hebrew very expansively to include both the 19th and 20th. But when you're reading 19, especially like early to mid 19th century Hebrew, it is quite challenging. And, um, and every writer sort of has their own idiom. And it's, I think in the beginning, I was like, I, I'm not prepared to go there. 
Um, <laughs> and, and I think there's also kind of a disciplinary schism between the centuries too. Um, but at some point I was working on a conference talk that required that I spend some time with, um, with 19th century texts and, I, um, and particularly with this journal, Ha'asif, um, and I found some really interesting examples of literary translation there. And from that moment, I just, I went down the rabbit hole of 19th century modern Hebrew. <laughs> um, you, you found translations into Hebrew from other languages? Into Hebrew, mostly from German. Um, and what struck me was how Hebrew poets uh, who were translating in that period were actually doing a lot of different things in their translations. There, there wasn't, I mean, I guess the conventional view is that translation was sort of in service to the development of vernacular Hebrew. But what I actually also saw happening was that translation could become a space where poets could really explore different styles um, just different uh, ways of writing uh, that weren't necessarily about vernacularization um, and that there was no sort of consensus on how to translate. There were actually a lot of different approaches that proliferated in the 19th but, century. But, but even, even in more, I mean, this is a question that I don't mm -hmm. know, but someone who's, who teaches about this and uh, thinks about it, does do, uh, do literatures of cultures who are more, uh, which are more established and have a longer history, mm -hmm. do they have um, sort of canons of translations or any kind of um, tenets of, of, of translation? Um, well, I think that you have a lot of trans writing about translation and sort of theorizing or translation criticism of sorts, um, in the 19th century, for sure. I, I think there's less of that in the Hebrew context in that period. Um, and so I think because of that, sometimes there can be this impression um, that there wasn't much of a discourse around it. Except what I found is that sometimes, and, and this is the particular challenge of dealing with poetry, is that actually in general, one of the issues when you're a scholar of poetry is that um, not all poets come out with books of poetry. Um, and even when they do, they can take quite a long time. <laughs> um, and they don't tell us the full story of how a poem has circulated. Um, so really, you do have to kind of go to these journals, which have not all been digitized, and flip through them, like just page by page, looking for poems and for poems in translation. And so I actually did that with Hasif and with a couple of other almanacs uh, from of 19th century Hebrew almanacs. And what I found is actually um, a lot of interesting footnotes and small comments, um, sometimes short essays that would contain in them um, kind of translation discourse. Um, and so in the book, I, I, I sort of bring some of those observations together um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals 
Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off you know and and it's uh these were as you say these were really tremendously important because uh hebrew literature Mm -hmm. i mean the the, um practitioners Mm -hmm. of hebrew poetry and literature in the 19th century well into the i would say probably in 30s and even beyond were were for the most part hebrew was not native to them so translation was had to be had to be an integral part of what they were doing. Yeah, and I think, um, and so that's the other thing with the the four poets that I end up bringing together is they all have this sort of, you could say kind of a non-native relationship to Hebrew, um, which then gives translation, you could say a kind of urgency as it will. But even later, like for instance, with the first poet that I write about, Esther Rab, who was sort of, hailed to be the first native Hebrew poet, um, but actually was probably had um, a native speaker of Yiddish and Hungarian. Um, you know, at some point, though, it's clear that Hebrew was her main language. Um, but even in her first book of Hebrew poetry and her later works, um, I saw quite a lot of signs um, that translation was um was motivating her own writing in interesting ways. So, so yeah, I absolutely. I think that translation, especially um, in the early decades of the 20th century, was incredibly. It was it, it was necessary. I mean, um, you have all these discussions in that period on what kind of texts need to be translated and uh, which authors, and a, a big part of that debate just uh, centered around the necessity for more texts in Hebrew. Um, But I think there was also this sense that at some point there would be enough of a kind of native Hebrew canon that translation would no longer be as urgent. Uh, There's an interesting, there's an interesting moment in the book, uh, in the chapter about Leah Goldberg, mm -hmm. um, one of the poets you were writing about in which you actually mentioned sort of, um, uh, 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 confrontation she had um with with yes. another uh, with kariv i think right I'm on, yeah i actually opened the book with it right yeah yeah interesting yeah it is interesting that's a that was such a um cool <laughs> sort of scenario um it that's something that um is in her journals. Um, and we don't get the entire picture, but we know that it, it, this is in, I actually just have to open the book to the first page to find it. Um, but yeah, so in, in 1952, she gives this talk um, at a, the Higher Council of Culture. Um, and we don't have her talk. What we have is her account of the, you could say the Q&A, when this uh contemporary of hers, Avraham Kariv, who was also a poet and translator and critic, accuses her 
of desiring a translated nation. And, and essentially is accusing her of being, you know, diasporic. Um, and in his words, which is actually quite uh, amazing, um, genuflecting to non-Jews. <laughs> um, and, and, and it was fascinating to me to see how, you know, that I, I guess that by, you know, you could say by 1952, so once you have, you know, you, we, the establishment of the state of Israel, um, in the years following that, there, I think, was this sense that somehow, well, first of all, translation becomes very politicized. I mean, it always had been, but especially in, the, in those years, incredibly politicized. Because, um, of, the, because of the Holocaust? Um, well, in that in, in that anecdote, Kariv is is making this sort of al- al- accusation that you know her translation of certain writers is betraying you know the the victims of the Holocaust, as it were, or or rather, it's it's um, it's it's not fully appreciating or acknowledging um, the. Um, the ways in which European culture betrayed um, its its Jewish citizens, as it were, um, and and obviously, you know, Goldberg finds this accusation completely appalling. And one of her issues with it is that for her, it's translation is a way of bringing in different perspectives and different voices into a literary culture. And when you take that away from a culture. Um, it quickly becomes very um, homogenous and hegemonic, um, and for her, this is the pathway to fascism. So, um, so she's very sort of rattled by this accusation. Um, but it goes yeah, to it, show that there was, you know, this interesting shift in how translation was being perceived at that point. Yeah, and he himself was. Uh, uh, you, you say that mm-hmm. he himself was a prolific translator. He was absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, so how are you? Um, so we have some duty uh-huh. um, for um, saying a little bit about the book. <laughs> and so how? Um, so how do you do this? How do you mean? You you choose four uh, poets. Why these poets? Mm-hmm. Uh, how is translation central, in your opinion, to their work? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, in the, what's that? Sorry. Very very briefly. Yeah, no, I do in the, in the afterward to the book, I sort of, I, um, I give sort of a fairly clear, um, I try to offer up a kind of explanation of how the book came together. Uh, I mean, obviously in my introduction, I talk about sort of its central arguments, um, and how that'll develop through the various chapters, um, but I also wanted to, I didn't want to kind of uh, frame the reading too tightly for the reader. So I kind of waited until the end to really kind of share the story of how I pieced everything together, if that makes sense. Um, but basically, the way it came together is that I knew that I wanted to, um, this going back to graduate school, I wanted to work on the relationship between poetry and translation. That's always interested me um, for some of the reasons that I've, I've explained already. Um, and I, in the beginning, I, you know, I was interested in Rob and, and Leah Goldberg. Um, I was reading their work um, for various seminars. Um, and, but I also, I have to say, I always kept coming back to Harold Schimmel. 
Um, and part of it is that Schimmel, for me, is such an interesting writer. I mean, he was one of these poets that I came to very early on when I moved to Israel in the late 90s. Um, I found his, uh, his journey to Hebrew uh, and his commitment to being a Hebrew writer um, as someone who was born in New Jersey and had started off as an English language poet. I found that to be so interesting. Um, and I think I connected it to it in, in various ways. Um, and as an American living in Israel, also there was something about the way Schimmel negotiated between English and Hebrew and his American and Israeli identities um, that I found also to be, um, to, you know, deeply fascinating. Um, and, and at some point, the project just started to coalesce around the figure of Harold Schimmel as a poet translator. Um, and so in a, so the other three poets, Esther Rab, Lea Goldberg, and Avot Yeshuun, were all poets whom Schimmel translated. Um, and that's something that I only really discuss um, in more depth at the very end of the book. Um, and that was, I think that was the organ, the way I organized the project. You have the poet translator and the poets that the, that, that the, that he translated. Um, and, and that's the structure in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, um, I wanted to ask you to read mm -hmm. a passage that really struck me in the book. I think it's on page 159. Oh, this is you, the Ben Yehuda quote. Yeah. Um, you bring a really interesting quote from sort of the person who's considered mm. the father of modern Hebrew literature. I mean, he was a very gifted linguist who um, worked very impressively and doggedly throughout his life to modernize the language and uh, um, sort of legitimize its, legitimize its use. Um, and he has a, I wonder if you, if you want to uh, read it and mm -hmm. tell, tell me why you, um, why you chose mm -hmm. this and how it relates to your book. Mm -hmm. Sure. I'll read it in, in English cause, um, for the sake of time. But yeah, this is a passage that comes from Eliezer Ben Yehuda's autobiography, A Chalom de Chibron. Um, and he uh, is often credited with sort of um, the, the, ver the vernacularization of modern Hebrew in the 20th century. Um, and, and in this passage, he is recalling um, the languages of his childhood. And he writes, I must confess once more, at times when my mind dives into thoughts, especially of past days, the days of childhood and youth, and frees itself for a moment without my feeling it from the Hebrew yoke that I have mounted on it with a firm grip for so many years. Then I suddenly realized that for a second, I was not thinking in Hebrew, that from under this thinking in Hebrew surfaced a few foreign words in Yiddish and also in Russian and French. And then I understand that even for me, Hebrew is not a mother tongue, that my first words were not in Hebrew, that I didn't suckle the sounds of this language from my mother's milk, and that my ears did not hear them when my mother put me to sleep in my crib. And so I feel that despite my love for Hebrew, I certainly don't feel the same affection for it that someone who has heard it spoken from the moment of birth can feel, someone who spoke it from the moment he said his first words. 
thanks. You know, this is quite incredible yeah. coming from a person mm-hmm. who alleged, not allegedly, I mean, we know this, was very, very strict in his in his own household yes. about the Hebrew. <laughs> he was tyrannical. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. So... Um, so even he is, and how how are you using this in the in the book? I, I find this uh, really yeah, yeah. Uh, great passage. Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, so I think one way is this idea that obviously, and, and because this comes, this is actually um, uh, this is in the Yeshurun um, chapter, and then it carries into the Shimmel. But this idea that you have Hebrew um, and Hebrew as a yoke. So Hebrew is kind of this burdened, um, but yoke could also invoke the idea of a kind of uh, state of servitude, as it were. Um, And underneath, there are these other languages that somehow in this unconscious moment um, have an opportunity to resurface. Um, and I think that throughout the book, this is how I'm reading a lot of these Hebrew texts and trying to find ways to create opportunities for these other languages to surface, but also to see how the poets themselves are allowing for this resurfacing, this kind of multilingual resurfacing to happen. Um, but I think it also says something about my own relationship to Hebrew, because I think when Hebrew, you come to Hebrew the way I did, um, it's not, I mean, it, I, I can hear even sometimes when I'm speaking Hebrew, sort of my Spanish accent, or, and at times my American accent. And so there's no, I have no sort of monolingual Hebrew. It's, it's completely sort of infected with all the other languages I have. Um, and I'm also so aware of all the languages that are inside Hebrew. Um, and, and when you, and for me, I, I could, I, I don't know. I mean, there are moments when I'm reading a text or speaking Hebrew when for a moment I'm not thinking that hard about it, but I think most of the time I'm still doing a certain amount of thinking. So I can never get into a sort of state where I can take the language for granted. Um, and I think that's something that has really shaped the way I approach my reading of Hebrew poetry. Yeah, this is really one of the, uh, w- one of the interesting things I found about the book is how you really approach everything from a different perspective from, I mean, with respect to each of these uh, poets that you've chosen, you, you say something very different about them. I I don't know if we have time to uh, go in into Mm -hmm. it in in any way. I think people uh, should be, I mean, no spoilers as I say today, right? They should read the book. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I mean, really um, some, um, Two excellent uh, uh, female poets and two excellent male poets. Was that any, by the way, something that you you, you thought about? The reason I'm asking mm. this is because, you know, Hebrew literature has a really interesting um, history with respect to uh, gender divisions. I yeah, mean, yeah. in the 60s, yeah. we had very, very few, few um, uh, write, I mean, uh, right. uh, poetry, I mean, uh, uh, prose writers, right. but we, from the very beginning of the Yishuv in the 20s, we have quite a number of excellent female poets. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would have never written a book that was just about male writers. It's just um, not something that I'm interested in doing. Um, 
I think also I have to say one of the things that's really interesting about Harold Schimmel is how is that from the very beginning he translated quite a few um, women poets, um, and I found that really really fascinating um, because, as you said, I think you know it. Uh, it's not so much the case now, but a lot of the genealogies of Hebrew literature have been very male centric. Um, so, so I think, yeah, so I think in, in making sure that there was, uh, a, a kind of balance as it were, I think is something that, that I, I had in, in mind. Um, but I also think that sometimes when we allow ourselves as scholars to, try out different approaches and configurations, um, other voices surface. It's like that Hebrew yoke that gets released. Um, in this case, it's other kinds of yokes. And so as I was writing the book, I could also start imagining other groupings of writers. Um, and, and I, and I, that's one of the hopes that I have for this book is that, someone will come up with some other arrangement and it'll give us a chance to hear the voice of someone we haven't really either encountered or haven't spent much time with. Um, But really the more I think about the selection you've made, mm -hmm. the more I see the sort of beautiful connections between them. I mean, really Mm -hmm. one is against the other and there is a progression. I would even say there is a an evolvement mm-hmm. uh, from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, opening with a poet Esterab, who uh, is considered, as you say, and others, a native a nativist mm-hmm. poet, mm-hmm. looking at her poetry from another mm-hmm. cosmopolitan perspective, mm-hmm. and ending with Shimmel, mm-hmm. who is the least native, mm-hmm. and I would say the more. M- 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 the 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 polyphony of languages in his mm-hmm. writings is very smoothly embedded, mm. um, and so it really very interesting selection. So um, I think that uh, perhaps we shouldn't say too much, but just uh, <laughs> entice people to reading them. Um, anything else you wanted to um, to say before we um, wrap up? Um. No, it's just that, just to kind of also follow up on your last comment, that I I think that on the one hand, you know, as you know, um, having written books, uh, academic monographs, that you spend so much time with these protagonists. And so they, to me, it feels like the, the connections between them are so obvious um, at this point, because I've spent a lot of time with them. Um, but it's been really wonderful to talk to people like you about the book and have a chance to see it from the outside. Um, and, and to remember that actually when I started doing it, none of this felt entirely obvious. And there were moments when I thought this is maybe completely insane. Um, and yet at the same time, because I don't come to Hebrew in, I, I, well, let's just say my path to Hebrew has been also a kind of strange cocktail of its own. Um, at the same time, it it was clear to me that there was no other way to do it. So, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed reading the book, and um, I am uh, very glad you wrote it. It also has a beautiful cover. Thank you. Yes, I love my cover. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I don't know if you want All me right. to say something about it, but I'm very happy with the cover. Um, you want to say something about it? Yeah, I mean, so um, I actually commissioned the image um, from a, an Israeli comic artist named Karen Katz. Um, mm-hmm. She's a wonderful artist and also such a sensitive and smart reader of poetry. And she's done actually illustrations for a number of uh, collections of contemporary poetry in Israel. And um, I came across her work at one point and just thought that there was something about her style and her deep understanding of poets and poetry and translation that convinced me that um, she would be the perfect person to create an image for for the book. Um, and so the cover actually, for me, feels sometimes like the first page of the book. Um, but it's it's hard to describe it on the podcast. So I hope people will just look it up. But I, I do feel like that is sort of the starting point of the book, is that image. Yes. It's, yeah, it is striking and beautiful at the same time. Yeah. 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 Adriana, I thank you very much for uh, talking thank with me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And have a great summer. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.